Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. I am your host, Michael Delaware. And today I have a special guest on with me, Jim Jackson, who I've had on the show before. And we were talking about a little bit of military history back then from the Civil War. But today we're going to talk about a book that he wrote on the Haskell Home tragedy. And the Haskell Home was an orphanage that was built in 1864 in Battle Creek. And it was affiliated with the sanitarium. It was a, a sponsored idea by Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. And there's a whole interesting history with it. There was a terrible tragedy that happened with the Haskell home. It was a home for children. And so we're going to go into that story today. So stick around. Welcome, Jim. Thank you for joining me on the show today. It's good to be back. Yeah. So when did you uh, first become interested in the story of the Haskell home? I don't know if I saw it from other locations, but but I do recall keep coming across it when I was researching uh, information for various people for the Oak Hill Cemetery books. And uh, it, it, uh, it seemed to be a different type of, it wasn't my impression of an orphanage in the 1800s. Wow. Uh, in other words, I mean, if, if that brings to mind uh, workhouses and things, that's, I think, what the average orphanage was, even up until the 1920s, uh, you know, during the Depression, when you had uh, Little Orphan Annie comic strips, mm-hmm. uh, orphanages weren't much better then until you maybe got further on with Boys Town or before that with Star uh, in Albion, Michigan. Yeah. Or uh, and this seemed to be uh, Boys Town seemed to be built off of Star a lot. I mm-hmm. I, uh, I did find some references to uh, Father Flanagan uh, researching Star and Floyd Star, who started that, was the one that penned the, the the term. There's no such thing as a bad boy. Right. Most people would think that was Father Flanagan from the movie, but. Uh, no, that was an Albion quote. Interesting. But I mean, I think that was built off of uh, uh, this Haskell home because it was really built for nurturing children and keeping mm-hmm. them longer term. And as long as they were there, they would educate them, teach them a trade so that they could go out and become useful citizens. Right. And it was kind of the brainchild of John Harvey Kellogg because he was running the sanitarium at full he swing was. at that point, and he was getting a lot of kids. And they were getting a lot of kids there, and many people in Battle Creek know he he fostered dozens upon dozens of children himself. Yeah, he over adopted, forty at one time. They had adopted like forty children at one point. Yeah, and adopted many of them. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he he um, actually started in, in March of eighteen ninety one, where a committee was held for the. Uh, Seventh-day Adventist General Conference and to, to investigate putting together an orphanage. And it mm-hmm. was approved uh, right away, but uh, it took years to build. And it was a, a it was a fantastic building that they built. And it was dedicated in January of 1894. Okay. I think I had my dates wrong there at the beginning. So it was it was uh, dedicated in 1894. Now the building was quite impressive. It was like three stories. It had an attic above the basement. It was limestone, 
and it had a half pitch gothic roof some of my notes on and then it had this huge veranda on the front that was like 14 feet wide and 12 feet tall exactly two-story yes. veranda i mean it was just an impressive looking building it's the same as my notes so we must have gone to the same source yeah your book <laughs> oh well yeah i had i had a just a, to bring the audience up to speed i made a video on the haskell home and the haskell home cemetery but it was inspired by the work of jim jackson he's actually the one that tipped me off on the story and then i read his book and then did my own investigation as well and, and made that video but Jim has done a tremendous amount of research on this whole history. And um, so when it was opened in um, 1894, you know, how many kids were there the first year or two, you know? Uh, there were normally over, between 100 and 150 at wow. any one time from 1894 through till about 1907 when there was a schism uh, that was that was when uh John Harvey Kellogg fell out of favor with the church mm -hmm. and uh, they pulled some of their support. So then uh, as far as I know, and a lot of some sources said they were closed. I never saw that. And in the newspaper, every few weeks or so, they would refer to some kid at the uh, Haskell home. So mm -hmm. I have a feeling they were maybe you know there were probably less than 50 at that point but i right. mean i think it was still operational it never as far as i can tell it really never closed until uh 1909 yeah and it wasn't just orphans that were there from my research that there were some parents that the the, the mothers were going through intensive treatment at the sanitarium that surprised me too i so. i assumed an orphanage was for orphans meaning right parentless children, but uh, many children were dropped off there by grandparents who could uh -huh. no longer care for their kids. Some of them were there on a daily basis and picked up every night, kind of like a daycare center, uh -huh. while their parents or single parent, uh, in some cases, were either looking for work or working and couldn't take their children along. Wow. And, and looking for work, they might have been going out of state to find a job. Right. And uh, they couldn't have their kids tagging along for the job interviews. Yeah. And then it's been those cases with single parents, too, or things like that during that time period. That's that's quite an interesting um, history. Now, the, the lady who helped fund it gave it the name Haskell. Well, there's a yes. story behind that. Why don't we go into that a little bit? Well, there was Caroline Haskell. She was a widow. Her, uh, her husband made his fortune in lumber uh, from Indiana and Illinois. And um, so she was incredibly wealthy and she supported a lot of charitable institutions. She donated a lot of money. There's a Haskell Hall at the uh, University of Illinois in Chicago uh, that has like, a, at that point it had like Egyptian or uh, mm -hmm. Middle East museum pieces. And uh, I don't know if it's still used for that or used for something else, but the building, I believe, is still there. And she was visiting, actually, I don't think she was a resident or patient of the sanitarium. Mm -hmm. And I, I should explain that sanitarium was a term that Dr. Kellogg uh, came up with. It was kind of like a health spa. We, we think of sanitarium as a 
mental health facility or mm-hmm. something. This was more like a, uh, you know, the the sulfur spas that people went to rejuvenate. Right. And certainly, Dr. Kellogg was ahead of his time as far as he thought the the um, secret to a healthy life was uh, a good diet, getting plenty of exercise and fresh air. So his the sanitarium was built with his specifications, and so was this orphanage with mm-hmm. a lot of flow flow through ventilation, uh, so that the children were always getting fresh air, uh, summer mm-hmm. and winter. Interesting. But and then she, he also uh, designed the curriculum too, didn't he? He also well, the curriculum was a lot, um, very much based on uh, Seventh Day Adventists. Uh, criteria okay. and as was the diet he uh, mm-hmm. there was a little meat at first but they pretty much moved to a vegetarian diet for the children mm-hmm. and uh, they had a regiment from about five o'clock till uh, 11 o'clock at night where they would they would get up and clean up their area and uh, finish their toilet which was just uh, shower or, or bathing and uh uh-huh. And and washing soap and water and brushing their teeth and all of that, they had many minutes available throughout the day for meditation or reading scripture, uh-huh. and then they had uh, even worship daily. So and and that wasn't all that unusual back then. Many uh, households visited churches on a daily basis, uh-huh. or at least more than once a week, uh, back in the eighteen nineteen hundreds. Okay, so Caroline Haskell comes to visit the sanitarium because yes, she's kind of heard of, about the place. Her friend, a friend of her. hers was there, and uh, she was visiting, and she stopped in Dr. Kellogg's office and said she would like to help. She was very impressed with the way everything was run, and she wanted to help out in some way. Well, Dr. Kellogg had a normal spiel about, well, there's there's this ongoing effort to get chairs for the meeting rooms uh-huh. and other things. And she she kind of said, well, you know, you don't know me, but I, I had something more involved than that uh-huh. um, to the tune of, you know, like five figures or, or, uh-huh. or, or that amount. And uh, so this, uh, this orphanage was on the back burner for a long time. And they, they got the go ahead back in early on in 91, everyone was for it, but no one wanted to, uh, they, they, were, they were stymied as far as collecting money. I see. There was something written in where they couldn't accept anything less than $100. So, huh. I mean, the, the tabernacle that the uh, SDA or Seventh-day Adventist built was built from dimes coming in around the world. Uh-huh. So they they were no stranger to what small amounts in in large quantities add up to, right. but for some reason they put this uh, limitation on. So they were never able to raise more than a couple thousand dollars total. Okay. So this uh, she she he laid out all the plans that they had. She made a few suggestions and said she would foot the whole bill. Uh, of I think that was thirty thousand dollars plus there was like mm-hmm. ten thousand afterwards to uh, uh, either for maintenance or for 
other improvements yeah. over the years. So yes, it was all because of her and she, uh, her, her husband was big on children's things. They, I think they, uh, they either adopted or they had several children charities uh-huh. they were already donating to. So she knew this would uh, meet with his approval uh-huh. uh, and uh, she, she was all for it. Yeah. So she stipulated it was to be named in his honor. That's why it became Haskell home. And I've seen some things where she gave the money with no stipulations, but yes, there, there mm-hmm. were a couple that I came across that uh, seemed to be her stipulations. One was it was going to be named for her husband. Right. And two, it was, this was an initially an SDA project, just like the sanitarium was. Right. Right. But she wanted it open to all religions. Uh, right. So, that was one of the stipulations that I don't think was originally or would have been there if not for her. Right. And there may have been one other one. I I know there was no restriction for race or anything else with the children, but there didn't seem to be any stipulations for patients at the sanitarium either. So right. that may not have been her doing at all. So there was a, there's a lot of stories that you researched and came across about children arriving. There was one little child that arrived at the train station with a note pinned to him. There were, there were a couple young people that we wouldn't think of today. Uh, One was Albert Peters, who uh, was about nine years old when he arrived uh, on the uh, railroad, uh, having come from Hartford, Connecticut all by himself. Wow. He didn't have a note pinned to him, but he had a, a note to give. And uh, when he arrived at the railroad, a uh, policeman happened to be there, a constable just making his rounds. And uh, he he saw the boy by himself, and he was kind of despondent. So he, uh, he engaged him in conversation, and the boy produced a note saying, you know, his grandparents could no longer care for him, and he... Uh, Wow. Um, he was sent to Battle Creek. Now, coming from Hartford, Connecticut to Michigan, I know he had to have a few transfers along the way. So he must have had help uh, from place to place. Huh. But there was one even younger than that. There was uh, uh, Stephen Colvin, who uh, in the newspapers it said he was four years old, but he wouldn't be four for another two months. Wow. He traveled 200 miles from the Thumb area, uh, and wow. with, and that was the one with the note pinned to him. Uh, uh-huh. Please help me to get to Haskell Home, Battle Creek. Wow. My name is Stephen Coven. I'm from Worth, Michigan, which Worth is right up there in the Thumb. And again, there's I'm sure there was no direct line from Worth, Michigan to Battle Creek. Mm-hmm. He had to make some transfers, and some conductor uh, probably along the way helped him get on the right train. Yeah, and at, and at three years old, he wouldn't be able to follow the directions mm-hmm. without help. That's wild. Those are different times, indeed. Well, yes. Oh. <laughs> now you can't leave your ten-year-old unattended at the park across <laughs> the street without yeah. someone calling the police. Wow. And there was also another. Um, home for the elderly that was built around the same time as the Haskell home, the James White Memorial Home. Yeah, the, like the Memorial Home that was that was uh, really brought up at the same 1891 conference 
that we need something for for orphans or we also need something for the elderly and that i believe was uh reserved for seventh day adventists right. in their old age and and they also had to i mean there there was it wasn't just being old they had to, they had to have no family available to take care of them right and they had to have no means of support on their own so uh -huh. it was i mean there were some criteria you didn't just automatically go there to retire you uh, you went there because you had no place else to go uh -huh. or no one else to care for you. Yeah, and I read at one point there was discussion about making both of the homes in the same building. Originally that was, and I think when Carolyn Haskell stepped in for the orphanage, right. they figured they would make it two different places. Now, right. I've seen pictures of the uh, uh, the James White Memorial Building, and it, it's more of a... Uh, what you would think of a normal house back built around 1900 would be. Right. Uh, this, this, uh, like, like you mentioned, the promenade, uh, like a balcony going around three quarters of the building. Mm -hmm. It's just a gorgeous building. In fact, mm -hmm. there was a model of it along with the sanitarium that was on display at the uh, Chicago Columbian Exposition in 1893 when it was originally envisioned. Wow. along with a, a model of the James White Memorial Home. I don't know what happened to either one of those models, but it would... Uh, yeah, it would be certainly nice to... Yeah, that'd be awesome to see those in present day. So the story of the Haskell Home Orphanage ended in tragedy. So let's take us to, I guess, I mean, this was in operation from 1894 until that fateful day in 1909, was it? Yes, yeah. February fifth, nineteen oh nine. Okay, so uh, what what happened on that that morning? Was it a morning or an evening? That it it was a morning uh, in the middle of the night. Actually, uh, I forget the exact times, but I would say two or three in the morning, where uh, Mary Armstrong was fifteen. She was one of the first to wake up to the smell of smoke, uh -huh. and back then. I mean, there were fires all over with, I mean, when you have wooden buildings that are heated and lit by flammable fluid, you're going, you're going to have problems. Right. And uh, Battle Creek wasn't alone in that. Uh -huh. uh, some, some entire areas burned down like Chicago, uh, just from the uh -huh. fire spreading from wooden building to wooden building. And uh, that's what happened here. The girls were up on the third floor and so it was like a three-story jump, and a lot of the smaller girls were afraid to make that jump. But uh, Mary's younger brother, uh, James, who was 14, climbed up on a shed that was right underneath the window, and, and Mary was dropping the infants or the smaller girls into his arms to break the fall. Uh -huh. And the first three that she dropped were her own sisters, wow. and they were they were less than five years old. And so as they got older, um, as the children in line got closer to the window, uh, they were harder to break the fall. So that's all he could do was kind of be a go-between trampoline to get them to the grassy ground beneath. Wow. And uh, surprisingly, none of them were injured 
severely. One of them complained about a back problem, but mm -hmm. um, there was nothing else written about that in the days to come. So yeah, I, so she had to go out, take them out the window because they were they were blocked off from the smoke and the fire. Yes, they were. They had outside uh, fire escapes, but they couldn't get to them. Mm -hmm. And there was a back stairway that she went to first, and that was engulfed in flames. Right. And the main uh, hallway was engulfed in flames also. Oh, so wow. there was no way out other than to uh, jump. The window. jump. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they're, they're, the stories of the children, they they were all standing on chairs because the floor was too hot for their wow. bare, bare feet. This was <laughs> February 5th. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were just in the night clothes, probably no socks when they were jumping out into the, the icy snow. Wow. Uh, while the fire trucks arrived. And the boys were in another part of the building and the, a lot of them got out with the adults? The, the they two were, adults or... Yes, they were led down the main stairway with the uh, caretakers. And the one caretaker went down and got them down on at the bottom of the stairs when she realized that she had forgotten one of the uh, infants in the cradles upstairs. So mm -hmm. she... This is one of those things that you did the wrong thing, but it worked out well because she brought all the kids back upstairs, got the baby, and then back out again. Wow. Uh, so they all survived. There were three fatalities, three girls that, uh, um, well, three children that didn't make it. Right. There was a Cecil uh, Cotent, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It was, she was a girl, 12 years old, from Iowa. Uh -huh. Then there was a George Goodenow from Chattanooga, Tennessee. There were many orphans from Tennessee mm -hmm. that was, I don't know if it was like a Lend-Lease kind of arrangement, but there was a famous um, orphanage in Tennessee run by a Mrs. Steele. And she was known all over the country. And mm. she could not pay for a railroad ticket because all the porters would let her travel anywhere she wanted for free. Oh, because wow. she she was a white lady from New England, but she started this orphanage down in Tennessee for only black children wow. because there were none. There were no facilities at all for mm -hmm. for the black children. And and that's that's why the porters were so generous to her to mm -hmm. in, in repayment. Wow. So and it was all her doing. I mean, it, like like Caroline uh, Askell, she she just donated her money and in her case, her time. So that, now, I remember, that, I remember reading that George was, they speculated that he never got out of bed, that he used to wrap himself up in his covers when he went to sleep because he was yeah, scared. He used to wrap, and they told him not, not to do that because he might suffocate, but uh, <laughs> he would always cover himself up. Uh, maybe some childhood phobia or something. And they say childhood, he was 10 years mm -hmm. old when he perished. But uh, for whatever reason, he did. And he was sleeping uh, down underneath the stairway where he, he, he was more comfortable. And then there was Alina McClavy, and hmm. she was from Battle Creek, 14 years of age. Hmm. There, was, there was one uh, girl that uh, was going to be dropped off the, the evening of January 4th. But by the time her grandparents got her, to the uh, to the orphanage and signed all the paperwork. It was it was late in the evening, and they rather than 
leave a sleeping babe and having her wake up in a strange place, they decided to drop her off in the morning instead. Okay. And that that was the evening that, that I'm sure she would have perished because they had uh, like uh, quarantine rooms that they put new arrivals in so wow. they wouldn't contaminate the other. I mean, this was back, and, and there were many deaths from measles and influenza and other things. So they, right. they were very careful about contagious diseases because there weren't back then there were no cures mm-hmm. or inoculations interesting and then there's a haskell home cemetery which was a few blocks away yeah the cemetery is kind of mislabeled but it was for the most part it buried either children from the haskell home itself or from the um James White Memorial Home. Right. So you'll have this range of under 16 to over 70 right. uh, there for the most part. But it also, also uh, there are a few indigent locals mm-hmm. that had nowhere else to be buried, no one else to uh, take care of the cost. So they were also buried there and some local children too, just because there are so many other children buried there. They they thought that might be a good place for their children who were um, who, who died unexpectedly. Yeah, and this, folks, is a cemetery that is so old that all of the headstones have either sunk or been stolen. And the only thing identifying that location is a marker that was put up there. Was that somewhere in the 80s, I think, they when they put that up? Is, or I forgot the date. What the uh, date. So yeah, one of the descendants... Here. I've got here a dedicated 1989. Yeah, so one of the descendants of, or a couple of the descendants of some of the people that had been at the Haskell home paid for that marker to be placed there in memory of their family, right? Yep. So the children that perished, there's some interesting stories about that as well. They were all buried in the same casket. Is that correct? What was what they could find? Yes, they found. Um, they just found pieces of bone, really, okay. right. in different locations, and some of them not where they expected to find. They 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 know the one girl uh, that Mary Armstrong was getting all the girls out. And there was one really about Mary's age that refused mm-hmm. to jump, or maybe she just didn't want to take orders from someone her own age. Wow, and. Uh, Finally, uh, Mary jumped herself, and and she was uh, badly burned uh, in the incident. Her uh, her arms were blistered, her her hair was singed, her eyes were damaged from the smoke. Plus, she she fell the whole way, so she she was. Uh, I don't think she broke anything, but she was the worst for wear. And there was a newspaper photograph of her right uh, the next day where she had. A white cloth around her eyes, and uh, huh. but the other girl that remained, all the kids were down below and begging her to jump out the window, and she was just at the window, and all of a sudden there was a noise, and she just disappeared. Wow! And they expected to find her right underneath that, but they found her in the other part of the building, which, you know, by that time with the floors caving in, 
Mm-hmm. You know, she may have slid uh, floors being at an angle or something. Yeah, I could have just uh, would explain why she was found mm-hmm. in a different part of the building wow. from where they expected. But yeah, That's... they were all, uh, and typically there was a lot of uh, world class entertainment at the sand, either for the children or for raising funds for upkeep of the children. Hmm. And the children would often march two by two or hand in hand uh, down the different blocks to the sanitarium. It was several blocks away. And then back the same way, holding hands two by two. And for the funeral, they had uh, the same procession with three open lines in the uh, procession where the missing children usually walked. Wow. So the aftermath is the building was destroyed permanently. I mean, it was never rebuilt. It really was. There was actually, there was a fire uh, back in the, in 1903 that destroyed the powerhouse, which was a, like a boiler room with mm-hmm. pipes going underneath the ground and also the laundry room. Uh, that was, that was destroyed by fire that they rebuilt. Well, mm-hmm. now that became the temporary home for many of the children right. while the main building uh, was destroyed. And also there were, there were a few here, a few there, maybe a dozen somewhere else that went to live with people in their homes r- around Battle Creek area hmm. where they could, uh, you know, in, until they started building. And they did, they, there was an attempt to build again. And the idea was to build it more in cottages uh, separated hmm. from each other for each family. As as the children were living there, they were separated in families, what they were called families anyway. The teacher was called the mother and they, uh, they had school together. They would uh, eat together at their family table. Oh. So, I mean, it was very family oriented, even though they were familyless. Uh, wow, I see. Parentless at any rate. So similar was, to... Similar, like a certain number was defined as the family, like eight or 10 children or something like that. Yeah, usually it was under a dozen and uh, they were separated by uh, gender and by age. Mm -hmm. So the mother was teaching like a fourth and fifth grade level to to until they Mm -hmm. went on to the next grade and probably staying with the same mother and mother probably advanced with them. I I don't remember ever seeing anything about that if the mm-hmm. mother stayed with the grade or if the mother stayed with the children okay and so the after the they moved in the temporary situation the the whole project kind of dissolved after that funding never came back to rebuild it it did for, i mean they had they were talking about the orphanage uh in year years afterwards mm-hmm. but i don't think it was a major building right i think it was uh either from the um uh, the laundry room mm-hmm. building right. or from from uh, maybe uh they built a smaller thing but it was never like it was uh in the first place wow it uh it went on to be sold and uh it was used and it was there were a lot of homes built there when mm-hmm. when uh, some of the manufacturing picked up around battle creek Right. Uh, for the people coming in from out of town to work there. And it was called the Haskell um, 
the Haskell Home edition. Right. And, and you see that on the plat maps nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. And there were some, uh, there was a fire there that uh, killed several children in one of the homes. And uh, the headline there was Haskell Home Tragedy. And it was, and I came across this and that was like, I forget, I'd have to look, but 1940s, 50s, long after mm-hmm. the Haskell Home was gone, it was, it was like, is this is this one of those flashback articles of mm-hmm. what happened forty years ago or something? But uh, no, it was it was just a coincidence that it was uh, the Haskell Home subdivision had a fire that killed some children, and mm-hmm. and they were here actually from out of town. Yeah. Um, in that case, because there was a blind uh, school near here, which I don't know anything about, but. Uh, Apparently, their daughter was blind and uh, or oh. deaf. I forget which or both, but uh, she was she was here for training and doing very well in the school mm-hmm. before she died. Yeah, on the street called Bernardo Place today, that's kind of where the Haskell home was. And they when they were building the houses along there, I think in the 1950s, they found remnants of the old burnt wood when they were excavating the basements on those houses on that street because that was where the Haskell home was. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not sure how they did it with the photography back then, but uh, one of the reporters went in the middle of the night and took pictures of the fire. Mm -hmm. And I've got, uh, there's pictures of those. Well, actually they're on the Willard Mm -hmm. library webpage, but they're in the book uh, along with the same uh, side of the house that, right is currently on fire. So you can kind of see mm-hmm. at least three sides of the house um, and and, uh, and, the, and the fire truly engulfed it. I mean, within, I think the, um, well, the reporting the fire was unique too because they had a, uh, they had a telephone, which not every mm-hmm. building did. Wow. And one of the caretakers, <laughs> when getting the children down, he ran into the kitchen quickly because he figured that's where the fire started, but there was no fire there uh, because that was really, I mean, someone, some kid went down and tried to make themselves bacon and eggs or something in the middle of the night. Uh, but um, that wasn't the case, but he picked up the phone and he yelled, you know, Hasco homes on fire. Well, this was back when, before uh, mechanical switching even, we have electronic switching now, but mm-hmm. before mechanical, that's when Edna, the telephone operator, picked up and asked who you wanted to be connected with. And all oh, okay. we heard was was home fire, and the line went dead from the fire. So uh, it was it was a, a young lad, probably in his early twenties, but he um, he had a presence of mind to go into the switching room and find out which of the main circuits that call came in on. Hmm. And uh, Haskell home was in that area along with many residential homes. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people in Battle Creek referred it to as the home. So on a hunch, he just dispatched the fire department there. And they oh. were there within five minutes of Mary waking up. But wow. they didn't have they didn't have the uh, water pressure for that kind of fire. And uh-huh. it took a, it took a lot longer to get the water tank up there 
by that time it was there was nothing they could do wow um, so it was so uh, the cause the cause was the old ventilation system you think or the uh there was well there was questions like every tragedy if you look at anything people don't know so they speculate mm -hmm. and um what the best scenario i've seen is apparently they had dust chutes now i had a when mm -hmm. i grew up i grew up in an older home that had a laundry chute right where you're on the third floor or second floor upstairs anyway and you drop your clothes down there and it goes down to the basement right. in a pile mm -hmm. where you don't have to cart your clothes downstairs to wash them. Well, they had a dust chute. Think before electric vacuum cleaners. Uh, they yep. would sweep the, the floor every day because dust mm -hmm. was a big, bigger thing then than it is now. Mm -hmm. As far as, you know, we've, we've, we can close our windows. They couldn't. I mean, there was no air conditioning back then hmm. in the summer months. So it would build up, but they would sweep all the dust over to this hole on the floor mm -hmm. and it would go down to the basement, which worked fine as long as someone emptied it occasionally or on a regular basis. But no one could remember when was the last time it would, had been emptied. Uh -huh. So uh, in addition to the dust, they taught uh, woodworking, they taught uh, sewing uh, for boys and for girls. Mm -hmm. So you had, uh, you had sawdust, you had threads, you had small pieces of fabric uh, all dumped into this dustbin. And oh. if you've ever been, if you've ever seen a pile of dust sit for a long time, mm -hmm. um, that's why they have you remove the lint filter from your dryer every time you use it because uh -huh. it will get warm to the touch yeah. and eventually you'll have spontaneous combustion and the 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 first eyewitnesses to get there said that the, all all three floors were aflame so this this dust chute acted like a rocket you know and just uh -huh. uh, sent the flame up every story and from there, it's just spread to the rest of the house. So the furnace obviously was in the basement. Was it gas or coal? No, the basement was in the laundry room, the boiler room. Okay. And it and the heat was was transmitted by pipes underground. Okay. So there was no there was no heating uh, things in the house itself. I see. So there wasn't any spark or anything from the furnace. It was just no combustible, probably from the the uh, just from the warmth, constant uh, warmth, wow. and eventual heat. It uh, just ignited itself. And if you've ever put that uh, lint from your dryer into your fireplace, uh -huh. I mean that that I mean that's like solid gasoline i mean yeah it it, yeah. it ignites really well, that's good what, that's why old barn fires used to burn too because of yeah compiled um hay up there for too long well, same, and the same thing you have the yeah i think they call it dust but the grain dust uh, mm -hmm. is highly flammable too. any anything like that if it sits and doesn't get cleaned out mm -hmm. wow well, it's been fascinating talking to you today, Jim. Um, can we talk a little bit about your book and where people can find it? Do they find it on Amazon these days? It is on Amazon. Um, and I did have it for sale and, and probably still is for sale if you're in this area. It's in 
uh, at New Story Community Books in Marshall. Okay. It's uh, that's right on Michigan Avenue, but uh, it's if you drive up and down Mich Michigan Avenue in Marshall, you'll you'll see the bookstore, and they usually have uh, books out on the sidewalk uh, on display. Okay. But, uh, they have it if you want to just stop in. I, in fact, uh, I did a book signing for them last year, so they may still have some signed ones, but uh, we talked about doing it again someday, so maybe I'll give them a call to remind them about that. But it is available on Amazon.com and uh, believe BarnesandNoble.com. But uh, the title of the book, yeah, the Haskell, the Haskell Home. Orphanage Tragedy. Okay. It's definitely an interesting and fascinating book to read. There is a lot of information about this tragedy, but you also learn a lot of, about the early history of Battle Creek um, by looking at that book. And Jim does a, a marvelous job of telling a story. You even track down some of these people that had been at the Haskell home over the years and kind of found where some of them had ended up after they left the Haskell home. Yeah, that was the last chapter. I, I wanted to find some of the people. I found a few of the people that worked there, but uh, uh -huh. um, most of the people I found were the children that lived there and uh, the Armstrong family. There were half a dozen that lived there, uh, and I think they were from Iowa. So, huh. I mean, this Haskell home was known far and wide, yeah. and uh, uh, many of them, in fact, Mary, the one that um, that saved seven children or more uh she became a nurse in oh, the good. poor part of chicago and uh it was it was written up in her uh obituary that she was a uh, you know an uh, angel of mercy huh. no mention of the haskell home fire huh. or anything else because they probably weren't aware of that back when she was 15. right uh, right but, uh, it was, it was, um, I did add that to her find a grave that, uh, cool. you know, she was, she was involved in this and, and nominated for the Carnegie medal, uh, for heroism that year. Wow. I couldn't wow. find any, uh, indication that she won, but, uh, the newspaper referred to the fact that she was, uh, a shoe in for it hmm. and they nominated her. Yeah. Well, she saved the lives of dozens of children that evening. Quite, quite a story, quite a story. Well, thanks for coming on today, Jim. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about the Haskell home tragedy. It's a fascinating story. Yep, I, I enjoyed writing it. Yep, well, we'll definitely have to have you back on. We'll talk about some other of your books that you've done. And that's gonna conclude today's episode. I've been talking with Jim Jackson, the author of the Haskell Home Orphanage Tragedy that happened in Battle Creek, Michigan. I'm going to put the link to his book on Amazon in the description of this episode so that you can check it out and certainly get a copy yourself. He's also the author of the book Veterans of Oak Hill Cemetery, so you might be interested in reading that book as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to take some time to leave a review on whatever app you're listening to about the podcast. It'll 
always helps to get that information out there to new listeners. If you'd like to find out more about me, you can check out my website at michaeldelaware.com. The link to that will also be in the description below. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet another fascinating tale of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. Thank you.